Chapter 10 of The Creature from Beyond Infinity by Henry Cutner. Read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Creature from Beyond Infinity, Chapter 10 The Living Death. Stephen Court was in his Wisconsin laboratory home. With Marion and Sammy, he had returned from Canada and plunged immediately into a desperate succession of experiments. Slowly, painfully, he made progress. "'We have two goals,' he told Marion, his dark eyes gleaming behind lids that were red with lack of sleep. First, first, you've got to eat something,' the girl interrupted. She brought a tray to Court's desk and set it down. Silently, he nodded his thanks. Wolfing a sandwich without tasting it, he kept on talking. Remember what I told you about seeing a golden spaceship on an orbit around the Earth? I've been checking that. I have a hunch there's some clue connected with that ship. How do you figure that out? Marion perched on a corner of the desk, her trim legs swinging under the lab smock she wore. The ship was obviously created by some civilization far in advance of ours. That means their science was also in advance of today's. Perhaps in that vessel I can find some weapon, some method unknown to modern science, that will help me fight the plague. The very least it can do is set me on the right track." Marion patted her dark hair into place, though she boasted that she had lost all silly feminine habits. "'How can you reach the ship?' Space travel is impossible." Court smiled. It was impossible. Rockets are useless as yet, because the fuel problem's insurmountable. Balloons weren't practical. But there is a way of overcoming gravitation. Good Lord! The girl slid down from the desk and stood staring. You don't mean— Hold on. I haven't done anything yet except make some spectroscopic analyses. Marion, that spaceship isn't made of gold. It's a yellow metal, an unknown alloy. I haven't finished analyzing it, but I know there's magnesium there, tungsten, and other elements. The virtue of that alloy is that, properly magnetized, it becomes resistant to gravitation. How? she asked, amazed. Court tapped idly on the tray as he replied. I'm just theorizing, though I feel pretty certain. Earth is a gigantic magnet, you know that. Well, like poles repel, opposite poles attract. If we could set up a magnetic force absolutely identical to Earth's, we could utilize that principle. So far, it hasn't been done, except by the unknowns who built that golden ship. If I can duplicate the alloy, which I think I can do, and shoot the right sort of energy into it, we'll have a spaceship." Phew! Marion breathed, and she blinked. Then you'll go out after—the golden vessel? Yes. It may be a wild goose chase for all I know, but the chance is worth taking. I may find scientific knowledge that will be just what I need. The girl turned away with such haste that Court looked at her sharply. What is it? he demanded. She shook her head speechlessly. Court got up swiftly and swung her around to face him. There were tears in her lovely brown eyes. Tell me what it is, he commanded. What's wrong? She bit her lip. You'll think I'm foolish. I said, tell me what it is. I'm just superstitious, Marion burst out. It isn't scientific at all. But for a minute, I had the queerest feeling that—that—well,' he said impatiently, frowning and gripping her shoulders, "'that there's danger in that ship,' she whispered. "'Danger to you, Stephen. As though that golden ship had been waiting for ages, perhaps just for the moment when you'd enter it.' He grinned ironically and sat down again. Gulping milk, he watched Marion laughingly over the rim of the glass. "'A sort of ancient rendezvous,' he teased. "'You're under a nervous tension, Marion. We all are,' 
he admitted, sobering. And there's reason enough, I'm afraid. They fell painfully silent. Both were thinking of the man who lay alone in a lead-plated room upstairs. Sammy was already being ravaged by the frightful plague from outer space. Court got up, squaring his shoulders with decision. He didn't back down, you know, and I certainly won't run from a shadow. Get my suit, Marion. It's time to check up on Sammy again. Nervously, she helped Court don the armor. There's something going on at the village, she said. Not a... a shadow, either. Since the plague has hit the newspapers, the villagers are frightened. Why? Cord asked, slipping on his gloves. There's been only one case in this country as yet, and that was in Georgia. Europe, Africa, China, sure. But somebody's been talking. They know about Sammy. They claim that you're exposing the whole village to deadly danger by keeping Sammy here. Damned idiots! He made an impatient gesture with his lead-gauntleted hand. Sammy's completely isolated. There's no danger at all. They're not scientists, she argued. Just ordinary people, most of them fairly uneducated. But they've got families, and, well, I'm afraid. The police can't touch me. It's not that. Marion bit her lip and paused. Then she shrugged. It doesn't matter, I suppose, but I hope nothing happens. Nothing will, he assured her. He went out, hurrying through a long corridor to a lead-plated door. When he knocked, there was no response. Making sure there were no gaps in his armor, Court entered the experimental room. It was large, yet amazingly cluttered with apparatus. The lead walls dully reflected the dim light. On white-topped tables by the hospital bed lay gauges, indicators, and enigmatic-looking devices. The figure on the bed was completely unrecognizable. The metamorphosis had come so swiftly that Sammy was horribly inhuman in appearance. His skin emitted a silvery radiance. His face was a mere bag of loosely wrinkled skin hanging repulsively about the jutting nose. His mouth was invisible below eyes that were gleaming but blind. Court fought down the sick horror that tore at his stomach. He dared not give way to sentiment, nor even admit its existence. Before him was a test case, a laboratory subject, that was all. He must forget that he had ever known the old man, that the faithful regenerated tramp had been his only friend, his entire family. Hello, Sammy, he said in a voice that would not lose its choked quality. How do you feel? There was no motion perceptible in the shrunken body on the bed, but a remarkably clear voice murmured a reply. Hello, Stevie. Any change? None. I'm just hungry. Court took a rabbit from a lead-lined box beside the bed and placed it gently in the malformed talons, that once had been Sammy's hand. Instantly there was a change. The small beast kicked convulsively and was still. The glow emanating from Sammy's skin brightened slightly. That better? Yes, thanks, Stevie. Court drew up a chair and clumsily sat down in it. Through the lead-infiltrated goggles his eyes probed. With gloved fingers he made adjustments on the apparatus and carefully checked the readings on certain gauges. "'The change is progressive,' he muttered under his breath. Drawing a microscope toward him, he took a sample of the patient's skin cells and prepared a slide. "'Yes, entropy. Incredible. I still can't understand—' "'What is it, Steve?' Sammy asked weakly. "'Nothing new, but I'll find a cure yet. You can depend on me, Sammy.' The hideous folds of wrinkles twitched in a ghastly semblance of amusement. "'Your cure won't help me. I'm hungry again.' Court gave the old man another rabbit. Then he took pencil and paper, set a stopwatch on the table, and began the usual word association test. Though simple, it had proved surprisingly effective, 
in checking on the patient's mental metamorphosis. But now court was due for a surprise. The test proceeded normally, Sammy responding without much hesitation, though over two words, man and we, he paused perceptibly. Then court said, food, and immediately Sammy responded, human. Court had made a great effort to control himself. He read the next word and the next, but he did not even hear Sammy's responses. He was battling down the gorge that rose in his throat, yet this should have been expected. Sammy was absorbing life-energy from living beings, and the human brain contained the highest form of such energy. But what would be the result? Sammy's replies lagged as he seemed to grow weaker. Court left him at last, with a few encouraging words, but when he hurried out he was feeling worried and depressed. It was past sunset and he switched on the light in his lab. Removing the lead armor he sat down to think matters over. Sammy was no longer entirely human, for the change was progressing rapidly. His basal metabolism was tremendously increased. As Court had discovered, the very matter of his body was changed. Entropy, he whispered, nervously folding and unfolding his hands. That's the answer, of course, but what it means... Entropy, the rate of the universe's running down. A human body is composed of atoms and electrons, like a universe. If the entropic value of a life organism is increased, what is the result? Court was angry with himself because he did not know. He should have been grateful for not being able to see the future. Sammy's changing into another form of life, that's certain, and he absorbs energy directly through contact. I must take more precautions. He may be dangerous later. Abruptly there was an interruption. The door flew open and Marion burst in. Her brown hair was in disorder under her white cap. "'Stephen!' she cried through pallid lips. "'There are men coming up the road!' "'What about it?' he asked, without interest. "'From the village! With torches! I'm afraid!' "'Those damned fools!' he snapped angrily. "'Rouse out the men! Give them rifles! Tell them to spread through the house and keep its front covered from inside!' When I give the word, they can fire." Marion stared at him in horror. "'You'd murder those men?' Court's eyes were icy as he returned her stricken gaze. "'Why not? They're afraid I have a contagious case here. But they're afraid for their own precious skins. They'd be willing to burn down the house and kill Sammy. Well, it's lucky I've taken precautions. Do what I say!' His tone sent Marion racing out. Growling an oath, Court went to the front door. He opened it and stepped out on the front porch. A bright moon revealed the scene. Before him the road sloped steeply down to the village, with a few trees that were blots of shadow on either side. Torches flamed along the road. Twenty-five or thirty men, possibly more, were advancing in ominous silence. Court put his back against the door and waited. The ignorant fools! he was trying to save their lives. Quickly the mob formed a crescent about the porch. They were mostly villagers and farmers. Under other circumstances they would have dreamed and worked away their lives without ever embarking on such a hazardous venture as this. But now their work-worn faces were grim, and their sharp eyes narrowed with deadly purpose. Court unfolded his arms. Though he held no weapon, the mob drew back slightly. Then one man, a lean, grizzled-haired oldster in overalls, stepped forward. "'What do you want?' Court asked quietly. The old man scowled. "'We want some questions answered, Mr. Court. Are you harboring a case of the plague?' "'Yes.' The word was flatly emotionless, yet a mutter went up from the crowd. I suppose you know that's contagious. There can't nothing stop it." "'There is no danger of contagion,' Court replied. "'I have taken care of that.' He gestured at the flickering flames of the torches. "'What do you wish to do? Kill my patient?' "'Nope,' the spokesman stated. 
We want you to send him away from here, to a hospital. The papers say there ain't no way of stopping the plague. I got two kids myself, Mr. Court. The rest of us, we're family men. How'd you like it if—' "'I tell you, there's no danger,' Court snapped. His nerves, already tense with overwork and sleeplessness, were frayed beyond endurance. "'Get out, all of you, or you'll regret it!' An ominous low roar went up from the mob. They surged forward, paused only when Court lifted his hand. "'Wait! I have a dozen men in the house, stationed at the windows, with guns aimed at you right now. Submachine guns some of them, and rifles.' We can protect ourselves from lynch law." The crowd wavered uncertainly. The oldster yelled a shrill protest. "'We ain't lynchers, Mr. Court. We just aimin' to protect our folks. We got a car down the road a bit, and we aim to take your plague victim to a hospital.' Court laughed ironically. "'You poor idiot! You just said the plague is contagious.' "'Sure it is but we got rubber gloves and cotton pads soaked in antiseptic to tie over our mouths, and we'll wash in carbolic afterward. We just don't want our folks to run any risks." "'Rubber gloves!' Court snorted. "'Only thick lead can protect you from the plague. If you won't leave instantly, we'll use guns to convince you. And I warn you, I won't hesitate to do that if it's necessary.' "'He ain't bluffing.' one of the mob said nervously. I saw a muzzle up there in that winder. Don't worry about it, the spokesman said. We're coming in, Mr. Court, unless you bring the man out to us. As the crowd surged forward, Court raised his pistol and took steady aim at the leader. You set foot on the first step, he gritted, and I'll put a bullet through your head. The old man walked slowly, quietly up the steps. Behind him came the others. Court's finger tightened on the trigger, yet he did not fire. His face grew terrible at the conflict that raged within him. Stephen Court, man of ice and iron, torn by puerile emotion. Shoot! That was the logical thing to do. Shoot! To save Sammy! To save the experiment from those ignorant fools! But the mob did not want to kill. Court knew that they were honest, hard-working men who loved their families and wanted to protect them from danger. The nearest was only a few steps from him, but Court did not fire, nor give the word that would have brought a searing blast from the upper windows. His lips twisted in agonized indecision. From within the house came a scream, the door flung open and Marion Barton fled out, her face chalk-white. Stephen, quick! Court whirled, ignoring the besiegers. What is it? Sammy came into the lab. He was—' A startled gasp came from the old man. He drew back, staring. A rippling wave of fear shook the crowd that had shuffled to the porch. With one arm around Marion, Court dragged her back. Just then something came out of the door. He knew it was Sammy, but the metamorphosis had been incredibly accelerated. Sammy was not even as human as he had been half an hour before. His body could not be seen. A white shadow, with flickering nimbus edges, paused on the threshold. The pallid glow emanating from Sammy's flesh had become so brilliant that his lambent light entirely hid the frightful body. Staring at him was like looking into the heart of an electric light bulb, though the illumination was not strong enough to be blinding. A shining, roughly man-shaped shadow, it stood on the threshold. And it whispered. A vague, wordless susurrus murmured out, like the hum emitted by some electric contrivance. It was enigmatic and unhuman. The shadow lurched forward. Its shimmering arms went around the old man in overalls. The spokesman shrieked as though the soul had been wrenched from his body. Then he fell his body oddly shrunken, pale, and lifeless. Panic struck the mob. In all directions they fled back. The thing that had been Sammy seemed to glide down the steps in pursuit. "'Oh, my God!' Court whispered. His face was drawn with pain as he slowly took aim with his pistol. "'Sammy!' He did not finish, 
the shot snarled out in the night. The glowing bulk was unharmed. With his breath catching in his throat, Court pumped bullet after bullet at it. It stumbled down the lawn while the mob vanished along the slope. No use, Court gritted between his teeth. It absorbs every kind of energy, including kinetic. He let out a shout. Glancing up, he pointed. From the windows above him came a burst of sound. Submachine guns and rifles rattled lethally, concentrating their fire on the shining horror that moved into the night. It vanished behind a tree and was gone. Marion gripped Court's arm. Poor Sammy! Can't we go after him? That isn't Sammy, Court said grimly. Not now. It's... it's a horror. An alien thing out of another universe, perhaps. Yes, I'm going after it, Marion, but not till I've put on my lead suit. I'm not sure I can capture it, even then. He blew across the smoking muzzle of his gun. A creature whose touch means instant death is loose in the countryside. And I don't even know if it can be killed. Chapter 11 The Man from Carthage Scipio Agricola Africanus sat in a dungeon beneath the Circus Arena. Through a barred grating he watched one gladiator disembowel another. The stroke, he thought, was clean and good, for the men from Gaul were like wolves, dark, feral, and quick. Scipio rather hoped he would be matched against them, rather than against lions or an elephant. There was something about the feel of steel matched against your own sword that put heart into a man. An armored guard, coming along the corridor, pushed open the door of Scipio's cell. His hawk face peered in. "'Your turn soon,' he said. "'Good,' replied Scipio, with a pleasant oath. "'I grow tired of battling fleas.' The soldier chuckled as he bent to adjust a grieve. "'By my larries, you have courage. Too bad your dream failed. I would not have objected to serving under such a man as you. I failed because none of my men had the courage of a rabbit,' Scipio spat in disgust. Faith, we could have taken Carthage almost without bloodshed. Had your army not fled, leaving you to face the Imperial Guard alone, the soldier shook his head, grinning wryly. Nothing but trouble since you came to Africa, Scipio. It was bad enough with those damned Romans yelling that Carthage must be destroyed. But at least they had not tried to destroy it. And what did you do? Scipio's eyes lighted. He was a huge, swarthy man, with the scarred face of a gargoyle. His nose had been broken so often that it sprawled shapelessly awry. Atop that monstrous face the ringlets of short, curly black hair were incongruous. "'What did I do?' the adventurer asked. "'Faith, I tried to serve your king, but he would not let me.' The guard choked and spluttered his outrage. "'Jupiter!' You got drunk and dragged the king off to some low gambling hell. No wonder you had to flee to the mountains after that. Then you got some insane idea about creating an independent city of your own. That might have worked if you had gone far enough into the Nubian country with your followers. But you decided to take Carthage. Carthage! The soldier made an infuriating roar of merriment. Come within the reach of my manacled hands, Scipio invited pleasantly, and I'll tear off your head with considerable joy. Save that for the arena, said the soldier, moving back slightly. Tonight the cries will announce that the Carthaginian Scipio is no more. Only you are not a man of Carthage, come to think of it, are you? Why not? the giant captive shrugged. Rome is a melting pot. The blood of a dozen races mix in my veins. I am a citizen of Carthage now, at least for a while. By the way, how do I die? Elephant! They have a huge tusker whom they've driven must with rage and hunger. 
You are to face him on equal terms, both of you unarmed." He glanced cautiously over his shoulder. I am to accompany you to the arena gate, and if you happen to seize my sword and take it with you, well, such things have happened." Scipio nodded. Too bad you're not carrying a lance. However, a sword must do. I can spill the behemoth's blood before it tramples me. Thanks, soldier. If you let me escape now, I'll make you a prince of the nation I intend to establish." Listen to the lunatic, the guard said, with rapt admiration. In chains, penniless, and offering to make me a prince, a prince of dreams, mayhap. Anyway, my vows are to Caesar, and not the Roman imperator anyway. So you must remain a captive." The filthy straw rustled under Scipio as he shrugged. A death-cry drifted in from the arena, then the triumphant roar of some ferocious beast. "'Well,' said the soldier, "'your time has come.' "'I wonder.' There was a curious look in Scipio's deep-set eyes. "'Lately I have had a queer feeling, as though the gods were watching me. Perhaps—' He did not finish. More guards came, and the Carthaginian was unfettered and escorted along an underground corridor. Almost naked, his brawny body gleamed like mahogany in the sharp contrasts of light and shadow that filtered in through bars. Then the arena opened before them. Scipio was thrust forward. He saw at his side the friendly soldier, turned so that his sword-hilt was exposed. With a grin and a quick movement, Scipio clutched the weapon and whipped it out. Before the startled guards could move, he ran forward into the hot sands of the arena. The soles of his feet burned, then cooled as he halted in a patch of reddened sand. The blazing African sun flooded down in blinding whiteness. Scipio had only a vague impression of the crowd that filled the circus. He could pick out no individuals. He felt as though one vast entity, surging, whispering, watching, surrounded him, and the head of the entity was the canopied box of the Lord of Carthage. Scipio shifted his grip on the sword. He brushed the curly hair from his eyes with one hand and stood warily on the balls of his feet. A must elephant, eh? Well, no man could resist such an enemy, yet a man could die fighting. Alas for my dreams of empire, the Carthaginian murmured, with a crookedly sardonic smile. Faith, I might have ruled the world given time, and now I must water the sand with my blood. He turned to the imperial box, lifting his hand in salute. The emperor nodded, expecting to hear the usual, We who are about to die, of the gladiators. Scipio disappointed his host. At the top of his voice he howled the words that would most enrage the onlookers. Carthage must be destroyed! A wave of fury, a gasp of astonishment and rage rippled around the arena. The emperor made a quick, angry gesture. Grinning, Scipio turned to see a barred gate far across the sanded arena rise slowly. For a few heartbeats there was silence throughout the circus. The blinding white heat was oppressive, steam curled up from the blood-stains on the sands. Then the must elephant pounded to the gate, huge, monstrous, a gray walking vastness of animated dull savagery. He lurched through the gate and stood motionless, only his bloodshot little eyes alive with hatred. The trunk did not move, save for the tip, which swayed back and forth slightly. A shadow darkened the arena as a cloud crossed the sun, and then was gone. Scipio hefted the sword he held. It was a short-bladed weapon, useless unless he could hurl it like a javelin. It was even too broad to pierce an elephant's eye, the most vulnerable spot of the monster. Briefly, Scipio thought of slicing off the elephant's trunk as far up as he could reach, but that would still leave the tusks and mighty tree-trunk limbs that could squash a man into red pulp.
"'Well,' Scipio said with grim amusement, "'at least they had to use their biggest elephant to kill me.' His gargoyle face twisted into a fearless grin. In the glaring light he resembled a teakwood statue, thewed like a colossus. The elephant came forward slowly, its red eyes questing viciously until it saw Scipio. It paused, and the trunk lifted, waving snake-like in the air. It snorted angrily. Again the shadow darkened the sun, and this time it did not pass. The Carthaginian had no time to look up. He bent slightly from the knees, holding the sword high like a javelin. The elephant broke into a lumbering trot. Its speed increased. Like the juggernaut, it bore down on him. Scipio had a flashing glimpse of the monster. Flapping ears, murderously upheld trunk, gleaming tusks. The thunder of its approach was growing louder, booming in his ears. It loomed above him. From the skies sprang a thunderbolt. Flaming with pale brilliance, the crackling beam raved down. It caught the behemoth in mid-stride, bathing it in shining radiance. And the monster vanished. It was gone without a trace. The deep craters of its rush ended in the sand a few yards from where the shocked Scipio crouched. From the spectators rose a roar, terrified, unbelieving. A golden ball of enormous size plunged down into the arena. Lightly as a feather it grounded. A port in its hull sprang open. Scipio saw a thin, pallid man, with the ascetic face of a Caesar. He was clad in odd garments and was beckoning urgently. Beyond him Scipio glimpsed a fat Chinese, whose round cheeks were quivering with excitement. A spear flashed through the air, rang impotently against the golden hull. Almost paralyzed with amazement, Scipio ran forward, leaped into the ship. What this miracle might be, he did not know, but it seemed to provide a means of escape. Whether the pallid man was a god or a devil, at least he seemed friendly. More important, to remain in the arena meant death. The port slammed shut behind Scipio. He bounded through the inner lock and stood, wide-legged, staring around. The sword was still gripped in his hand. Past him the pallid man strode and entered an inner chamber. A quiver of movement shook the ship as it lifted. The Oriental waddled into view and beamed at Scipio. "'Relax, friend,' he said, lisping the unfamiliar tongue. You speak Latin?" Naturally, Scipio stated. All the world does. Are you a god? I doubt it, for only Bacchus and Silenus are obese, and their skins are not yellow. The Oriental shook with laughter until he had to hold his heaving belly. I have heard of this Bacchus, a new god, but he is a good one. Sit down, he waved toward a couch. My name is Li Yang. Do you wish food?" Scipio shook his head and sat gingerly on the soft cushions. "'You called me friend?' he asked. "'I might have better called you comrade. Ardath saw the hidden possibilities in you, Dragonface. He read your mind while you slept. Ah, but you have dreams of empire, poor fool!' Li Yang shook his head, and his yellow cheeks swung pendulously. "'Ill luck dogs me,' Scipio said, lightly grinning. "'The gods hate me, so I wear no crown. Nor will you. You are not ruthless enough. You could carve out an empire for yourself, but you could not sit upon a throne. Under all thrones the snake coils. You are too honest to be a king, Scipio.' The Carthaginian had been about to answer, but he paused. His dark eyes widened, and a flame sprang into them. Ponderously, Li Yang turned. Two figures stood on the threshold. One was Thordred, but Scipio had no eyes for even that gigantic form. He was staring with a burning fixity on the Atlantean priestess. She looked lovely indeed. 
Her delicate figure was veiled by a girdled robe, from the hem of which her tiny toes peeped. Her golden hair hung loosely about her shoulders, and framed the elfin features that showed interested admiration. "'Jove's thunderbolt!' Scipio gasped. "'Nay, but this is a goddess. This is Venus herself!' Jansaya preened herself. Under her lashes the sea-green eyes watched Scipio slumberously. She basked in the frank, open gaze. "'This is Scipio?' the priestess asked. She came forward and put a small, shapely hand on the Carthaginian's brawny arm. He looked down at her, his gargoyle face alight with wonder. "'You know me? But who are you?' Jansaya, the girl glanced over her shoulder. "'And this is Thordred.' Scipio saw the giant for the first time, apparently. His gaze met and locked with Thordred's smoldering glare. The two men stood silent. Scipio did not notice when Jansaya took her hand from his arm. Li Yang's red lips pursed as he glanced from one to the other. It was a sight worth seeing. Thordred was huge, elephant-thewed, hairy as a beast, with jutting beard and aquiline, handsome features. Scipio, though slightly shorter, was almost as huge. His gargoyle face grew stone-hard. Thordred's cat-eyes glittered. A silent enmity flamed in those glares that met without speech. Ardath broke the deadlock by coming out of the laboratory. "'We are moving out toward our orbit,' he said, smiling. "'Soon it will be time to sleep again. Perhaps next time,' he sighed. "'Meanwhile, though Scipio is not the super-mentality I need, he is a genius in his way.' Let me explain, warrior." Scipio nodded from time to time as Ardath told his story. The Carthaginian's quick brain grasped the situation without difficulty. "'You will come with us?' Ardath asked at last. "'Why not?' Scipio replied, shrugging. "'The world is not ready for such a man as I. In later ages countries will recognize my worth and kneel at my feet.' The granite face cracked into a grin, and he glanced at Jansaya. "'Besides, I shall be in good company. To how many men is it given to know a goddess?' Thordred growled under his breath, while Li Yang chuckled. The fat Oriental picked up his lute and strummed softly upon it. His voice raised mellowly. "'My love has come down from the moon-lantern. In the heart of the lotus she dwells. And now, Ardath turned toward the laboratory, I must adjust my controls. We shall automatically fall into orbit. For two thousand years we shall sleep, and then revisit the earth. He vanished into the next room. Fragrant are her hands as petals, Li Yang sang. In her hair the stars dance. Jansaya smiled. Scipio grinned a silent, confident reply to Thordred's dark scowl. Humming power throbbed through the ship, swiftly grew louder. Li Yang clambered awkwardly on a couch, gesturing for Scipio to follow his example. Sleep poured from the monotonous sound. Idly, Li Yang touched the strings of his lute. "'Give me sweet dreams, dear goddess,' he murmured. Jansaya reclined on a couch. When Scipio turned his head to watch her, her green eyes met his. Thordred moved stiffly forward. His hand was hidden from view behind him as he stood beside the laboratory door. The languorous humming grew louder, more compelling. Jansaya slept. Li Yang's pudgy hand fell from the lute. Scipio's eyelids drooped. Footsteps sounded softly. Through the doorway came Ardath, smiling his gentle smile. Perhaps he was dreaming that, when he awoke, he would find his quest at an end. Not noticing Thordred beside him, he turned and fumbled over the wall with rapidly slowing fingers. The skin around Thordred's eyes wrinkled as he fought to remain awake. 
His hand came up with the slow motion of encroaching torpor, and he gripped a heavy metal bludgeon. He crashed it down on Ardath's head. Without a sound, the Kyrian crumpled and fell, lay utterly motionless. Blood seeped slowly through his dark hair. Instantly, Thordred lunged through the doorway and reeled toward an instrument panel. If he could throw a single switch, the sleep-inducing apparatus would be shut off. Louder the humming grew. Its vibration shuddered through every atom of Thordred's body. In the next room was absolute silence. Thordred fell without feeling that he was doing so. The shock awakened him. He dragged himself to his knees and crawled on, his hand clawing desperately. One finger touched the switch and helplessly slipped down. The giant Earthman crouched, shaking his head slowly. Then he collapsed and sprawled out, silent. The yellow eyes were filmed with cataleptic sleep. The humming rose to a peak that gradually began to die away. Inside the golden ship nothing stirred when it reached its orbit and robot controls made swift adjustments. Around the earth the vessel hurtled. The loot fell from Li Yang's couch. A string snapped. Chapter 12 The Man from Earth Stephen Court raced his roadster along a Wisconsin road as he peered through sunglasses at the lonely countryside. Beside him, Marion Barton huddled like a kitten in the seat, the collar of her white blouse open for coolness. How long? she asked. Couple of hours, Court grunted. We passed through Madison first. The drome's fifty miles south of there. Marion drew a notebook from her purse and thumbed through it rapidly. Everything's checked, I think, she reported absently. Except the test flight. I don't believe that Terra was thoroughly inspected. Damn silly name the papers gave the ship, Court said wryly. It didn't need a name. It'll make the flight all right. And if it doesn't? He shrugged indifferently without glancing at her. Nothing much lost. For more than a month now, I've been working on the plague, since Sammy got away, and I'm still at sea. Earth science just isn't advanced enough. But perhaps I can find some more advanced alien science in that golden ship. Anyhow, we'll see. Why must you go alone? she insisted, her voice not quite steady. Because there's only room for one. We can't take chances. There will be little enough air and supplies as it is. I'm the best man for the job. So I'm the one to go. But suppose something happens. I can't stop the plague by myself. X is still unknown as far as I'm concerned. The only real clue so far is entropy. I know that X is catalyzed by some element in Earth's atmosphere. It speeds up the entropy of a living organism, changes it into some form of life that might exist, normally, a billion years from now. But it's so alien!" He switched on the radio. A news commentator was talking excitedly. Around Pittsburgh, martial law has been declared. WPA workers are blasting out a deep trench around the city and pouring deadly acids into it. Whether this will form an effective barrier, no one knows. The rivers are filling with floating corpses. The contagion is spreading with great speed. Nearly a hundred of the carriers have been seen in Pittsburgh, and the bridges are choked with refugees." So there was still more of the shining monsters. Sammy had been one of the first, and he was still wandering at large, since nothing could capture or destroy him. The carriers kill instantly by touching their victims. Lead-plated suits are being issued to the guardsmen, but these do not always work. It depends on the quantity of energy emitted by a carrier. Dynamite has been placed at the New York bridges and tubes. The mayor is ready to isolate Manhattan, if necessary, for protection. The war is at a standstill. Troops are mutinying by the thousands. Every metropolis is being vacated. We estimate about three thousand carriers now exist, widely scattered over the earth, 
from Buenos Aires!' With an impatient gesture, Court shut off the radio. "'No hope,' he said. "'The plague is steadily on the increase. I must get to the Golden Ship and back as soon as possible.' They sat in silent despair as the car swept along the deserted highways. The landscape was incongruously peaceful. The green rolling hills of Wisconsin stretched around them. A broad, lazy river flowed quietly beside the road. The only sound in the stillness was the humming of the motor. Marion leaned her head back and stared up at the cloudless blue sky. All she could do now was let her thoughts drift. Suppose the plague had never come to earth. She and Stephen might be driving along together, under this same sky, and perhaps— she blinked out of her reverie and lit a cigarette with unsteady fingers. "'Thanks,' Court said, and took it gently from her. She lit another for herself. "'Funny,' she said. Court nodded grimly, staring ahead. "'Yes, I know. All this changing, giving place to the new. But God knows what the new order will be.' a world peopled by beings of pure energy, eventually consuming all then-natural food and dying off. Then there will be only a dead planet." "'Will it still be as lovely?' she asked softly. "'Lovely,' Court frowned, seemed to notice the landscape for the first time. His gaze swept out over the rolling hills and the placid river. Yes he said finally, in a curious voice. It is rather lovely. I wasn't aware of it before. I didn't think you ever would be, she said. He flushed. I have had so little time. It wasn't that. You never looked at the world or at human beings. You looked through microscopes and telescopes. He glanced at the girl, and his hand went out in a gesture that was somehow pathetic. Then his lips tightened. He drew back, again clutching the wheel firmly. He looked ahead grimly without speaking, not seeing the tears that hung on Marion's lashes. They reached the airfield soon after. The Terra had been wheeled out, a shining golden cylinder, eight feet in diameter and twenty feet long. Its ends were slightly tapered and bluntly rounded. It gleamed in contrast to the rich black loam on which it lay. "'Small,' Court criticized. "'Taught we had no time to make a larger one. It'll have to do.' He helped Marion from the car, and together they went toward the Terra. A group of mechanics and workers approached. "'All set,' the foreman stated. "'She's warmed up and ready, Mr. Court. Thanks.' He halted at the open port. Well, good luck, Marion breathed. Court stared at her. Curious lines that had never been there before now bracketed his mouth. He looked away at the green hillside and then back at the girl. His lips parted involuntarily, but with an effort he controlled himself. Thanks, he said. Goodbye, Marion. I'll see you soon. He entered the ship and closed the port behind him. Marion stood quite silent, her fingers blindly shredding her handkerchief to rags. The Terra rose smoothly, swiftly mounted straight up. Smaller and smaller it grew, a glittering nugget of gold against the blue sky. Then it was merely a speck, and it was gone. Marion turned and walked slowly back to the car. Her lips were bravely scarlet yet they quivered against the pallor of her face. Court sat before the control panel, peering ahead through a porthole. "'Wonder what effect radiation in space will have,' he murmured. "'It's leaded Polaroid glass, of course, but the other ship had no portholes at all. They probably use some sort of televisor equipment that's beyond our contemporary science.' He could see nothing but the blue of the sky. It grew darker, shading to a deep purple. Faint stars began to twinkle, until countless points of light were glittering frostily. Sinus, Jupiter, Mars, Court sighed. 
With the secret of space travel mastered, man could reach all the planets. With sufficient power, the interstellar gulfs might even be bridged. But how long would man continue to exist on Earth? Hours merged into an unending monotony of watchful, weary vigilance. The Terra plunged on, gathering speed. Meteors might be a menace, Court mused, unless the magnetic field deflects them. But that would work only on ferrous bodies. Still, nothing's happened so far. He changed his course slightly. I'm doubtful about that space armor. Spatial conditions can't be duplicated on Earth. Well, I've taken other precautions. He had had the door made to fit exactly the port that had been telescopically visible on the golden ship. A queer excitement grew stronger within court as he neared his destination. He could not keep away from the transparent ports, for he was desperately anxious to see the golden ship. Some subtle instinct told him that the rendezvous might even be more important than he had realized. How long had the spaceship maintained its orbit beyond the atmosphere? Whence had it come? What strange secrets might it hold? When Court found that his fingers were trembling slightly on the controls, he grimly repressed his nervousness. But he could not help wondering. Centuries, eons perhaps, might have passed while the golden vessel circled the planet. And now Stephen Court, man of Earth, was questing out to what destiny. He did not know, but some premonition of the incredible future must have come to him, for he shuddered. "'Somebody's walked over my grave,' he muttered, with a sardonic smile at the whimsy. "'Well, it won't be long now.' Again he turned to the port, and his breath caught in his throat. The golden ship hung there, a mysterious, gleaming cylinder against the star-bright background of black space. Swiftly it grew larger. As court decelerated, his face was curiously pale. The Terra was easy to handle. He deftly pulled it alongside the other craft. Hull scraped against alloyed hull till finally the two ports were flushed together. Court threw a lever and hastily spun a wheel. He was breathing unevenly and his eyes were glowing with excitement. The ships were held firmly together by an airtight rubberoid ring. He rose, donned a gas mask, and picked up a revolver. Then he went to the port and gingerly swung it open. The air remained in the ship. Facing him was a surface of yellow metal, a scarcely visible crack showing that it was an oval door. Court pushed, but it did not yield. A blowtorch might cut it, and certainly acids would bite through. But Court did not resort to these immediately. He fumbled with a powerful electromagnet and worked unavailingly for a time. At last, in desperation, he used acids to eat a small hole through the outer hull. The air that rushed out was thin and dead, but far from poisonous. Grunting, Court reached through the gap and managed to open the port. What he expected he did not know. His nerves were strung to wire edge, unbearably tense, now that he was face to face with the solution of the mystery. The port opened, and for a moment Court was weak with reaction. He saw nothing but a short corridor, about six feet long, featureless and vacant. Naturally there would be an airlock, for safety's sake. He should have expected one. At the farther end was another door, but this one had a lever set in it. Court walked forward and moved the lever slightly. The port swung open. Air gusted from the terra to the golden ship. He stepped across the threshold and halted, staring around. He was in a good-sized room, apparently only one of several in this huge vessel. Open doorways gaped in the walls. The chamber was bare, with nothing but a few couches. But on the couches lay human beings. A gigantic, gargoyle-faced man was naked, save for a clout, his unbronzed body glistening in the dim illumination that came from no discernible source. 
Another man, Oriental, fat as a Buddha, sprawled untidily on a pile of cushions. On the floor beside him lay a lute with one broken string. And there was a girl. An elfin creature with ivory skin, her lips curved into a tender smile, she slept with her golden hair partially veiling her face. On the floor near a doorway lay another figure, face down. Court crossed to it and turned it over. He stared at a slight form and chiseled, patrician features. That face had some vague yet unmistakable touch of the alien visitor to earth. Something caught Court's eye beyond the threshold of the next room. A huge body sprawled there, one hand outstretched toward an instrument panel. Court strode toward it. He halted, realizing that he was in a laboratory, but no earthly one. He blinked in astonishment at sight of the apparatus surrounding him. Then, forcing down his curiosity, he knelt beside the prone figure and turned it on its back. The man's face was handsome in an arrogantly ferocious way, though a black spade-beard jutted from his pugnacious chin. The giant lay motionless, and Court saw that no breath lifted the hairy barrel chest. Nevertheless, he made careful tests, only to realize that the man was pulseless, apparently dead. For some reason, Court was not convinced. Could corpses remain in such a perfect state of preservation? Was there not such a thing as catalepsy? He returned to the others and found that they were equally lifeless, equally well preserved. There was the long chance of a wild hunch. Court returned to his own ship and came back with heating pads and stimulants. He paused to consider. Which one should he attempt to revive first? The girl? The Chinese? Why not the bearded man? His presence in the laboratory, the heart of the ship, indicated that he was probably a scientist. With a grunt of decision, Court went to the prostrate giant and put down his burden. Warmth must come first. The heating pads were arranged in armpits and thighs. He followed them with adrenaline, with brandy, artificial respiration. Court placed his hands in the proper position and forced air from the giant's lungs. Then back, and down again. Down, and up. With a surge and a rush, the man came back to life. He flung Court off with a swift gesture and sprang up. His hand closed on the switch he had been striving for. But he halted and whirled his yellow cat's eyes glowering at the smaller man. He said something Court did not understand. Rising to his feet, Court kept one hand on his gun as he watched the giant warily. Abruptly, the blackbeard strode past Court and into the next room. When he returned, he was grinning. He stopped at the door and stood with arms akimbo. After a moment, he spoke slowly, in Latin. It was a language that Court, being a scientist, had studied with some thoroughness. "'I come from Earth,' he explained. "'The third planet of this sun. I mean no harm. I awoke you.' The other nodded. "'I am Thordred, but there is no time to talk now. Tell me, swiftly as you can, how you found us.' Court obeyed. As he talked, Thordred went into the adjoining room and stood contemplating the silent figures. He stooped beside the slim body on the floor. Dead, I think. Yet, this is your ship? He pointed toward the port. Yes. Well, you will not need it. My ship is yours now. A gleam of amusement shone in the yellow eyes as Thordred lifted Ardath's body and carried him into the Terra. He paused to study the controls. After making a careful adjustment, he returned. The door of the Terra he closed behind him, then both ports of the larger ship. Court felt a touch of apprehension. "'Thordred,' he said with quick anger in his voice, "'what are you doing?' The giant turned to a vision screen in the wall. He flicked it on. "'Look!' On the screen, Court saw the Terra flashing away through space. He felt a sudden pang that chilled to cold rage. "'What right?' Thordred grinned. 
Slowly, Stephen Court. I have said that this ship is yours. As for him, black hatred shone in the yellow eyes. He was a renegade and a traitor. He tried to kill us all. He is dead now, but science and magic may bring even a dead man back to life. So our death is going where there is neither science nor magic, toward the sun. The sun? Yes. I set the controls on your ship. They are not difficult to understand. Our death is doomed if a dead man can die again. And now we will attend to the others." He glanced at the silent figures on the couches. "'We'll awaken them? One at a time. The girl first. Thordred hesitated. "'Revive Jansaya, Court, while I adjust the apparatus. We are going back to Earth.' "'Good.' Court smiled. We need your help. His throat felt achingly dry, for at last his search was at an end. With the science of this Thordred added to his own, the plague could be fought, perhaps conquered. Thordred was smiling triumphantly as he went into the laboratory. End of chapter 12